At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. In his memoir, I'm Possible, Richard Antoine White writes that playing music was like a light going on in the dark. The book traces his life from growing up fighting for survival on the streets of Baltimore to success as a renowned classical tuba player. He co-created a scholarship for black music students, the Brothers in Achievement Scholarship for the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University, where White attended graduate school. I'm Possible is an account of triumph and resilience as well as a testament to the redemptive power of music. Later this hour, Richard Antoine White tells us about his story of survival at Cuba and the small power of a big dream. First, essential theater has been nurturing new plays for Georgia playwrights since 1999, launching the careers of successful playwrights such as Lauren Gunderson and Topher Payne. This year's 23rd annual Essential Theater Play Festival will showcase three new plays and a play reading series. Joining me now via Zoom are the founding artistic director, Peter Hardy, and playwright John Maybe. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Peter, please take us back to the origins. Why did you want to create the Essential Theater and especially this festival? Originally, it was just uh, way back when was a, a way of me finding a form by which I could direct plays. So I was going to produce my own productions. And uh, we started doing the Essential Theater Festival in 1999 as a way of making more of a statement by doing several plays in repertory than just doing a single production would be. And uh, from the first year, I decided that we would do 
at least one new play by a Georgia writer every year. And after a couple of years, we started the Essential Theater Playwriting Award competition, which is still the only one of its kind with the winning player plays getting both a uh, cash prize and a full production. The cash prize currently stands at $750. Around 2012, we shifted to the point where we did only new plays by Georgia writers. Up to that point, we had done at least one new play by Georgia writer and then some other new plays from around the country. But our focus has been exclusively on Georgia playwrights since 2012. And um, it's very important to me. I'm a playwright myself. It's very important to me to have a, uh, a situation that is supportive and helpful to playwrights and is the kind of opportunity that I would like to find as a writer myself. In a moment, we'll hear from John Maybe. His play has pride of place. First, can you tell us just a bit about the other playwrights featured in this year's festival? Well, uh, sure. Yeah, we opened uh, with our production of Daniel Carter Brown's The Outrage Machine. This play was actually one of the co-winners of our 2020 award. We were going to produce it that summer, but uh, COVID happened and that year's festival had to be canceled. So we didn't want to leave it behind. The Outrage Machine is a satirical uh, drama about uh, the misuse of social media. And also, I think really, it's not just about technology. It's about the all too human tendency to make quick judgments about other people without really knowing their whole story. It's very easy to get terribly angry at somebody when you've heard them say two sentences. I think that's something that's probably been going on since the beginning of time, and it's been really accelerated with social media. Uh, so that play just opened. Uh, we got a great response from our audience, and this Friday we'll be opening John's play, A Complicated Hope. Those are the only two full productions we're doing. We're also presenting a workshop reading of a play called The Wash by Calundra Smith. That'll just be for one night. That is presented in cooperation with a new play development group in Atlanta called Hush Harbor Lab. The Wash is a true story about a, a group of uh, women who worked at a laundromat for very low wages who got together and went on strike and uh, won better working conditions for themselves. And then we'll also be presenting three stage readings of new plays by Georgia writers in what we call our Bare Essentials series. Hmm. Now, John, would you give us a synopsis of A Complicated Hope and introduce us to your characters? Absolutely. Thank you. And also, it's to be part of this festival means so much to me personally. Um, Complicated Hope is, at its core, it's a story about three very different people, a mother, a daughter, and another gentleman that come together through grief. They all have a common bond connecting to someone that they all lost but it's the ways that they come together that are the core of this play. So grief is grief is absolutely something that each of them deal with in a different way throughout. But in every scene, there are, there's also sparks of hope. And what I've realized in my own life is hope is something that it doesn't always look the way you think it's going to look. And I wrote each scene with that in mind so that there's there's sparks of hope in each scene and the characters discover them and 
and work their way to find them, but it doesn't always look the way you think it's going to look. Hmm. This play goes back and forth in time. Well, first, do you feel like you've introduced us to the characters? Oh, thank you. It's funny, the characters I still speak to, and I feel like I know them very well. They're always in my mind. I'm not sure if that's true of other playwrights, but I'm it always is. speaking to them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it, Peter. The three characters are Marie. Uh, she's a mother. She's an attorney. Her daughter, Rosemarie, who is a student, and Arnie, who is a man in their life that comes to them in a very unexpected way. Marie's husband, who you you never meet in the play, named Michael, uh, also Rosemary's father, he has passed away before the play's even begun, but he is intimately connected to all three characters. And there are discoveries throughout the play about those connections uh, with both Michael and between themselves. Mm. The play goes back and forth in time. How do you illustrate the differences between the flashbacks and present day for the audience? I'll say it was it was a bit of a challenge because as I sat down to write this play, which the spark of me writing this play came from very personal tragedies and losses in my own life. I knew the story. I, I knew I knew the characters. I knew how they connected. And I knew the way I wanted to present their story. It, it wasn't as exciting to me to present it in a linear way because that's not how I experience grief. To me, grief is something that for someone that I've, I've lost, one day I might think of them and smile and laugh and a moment later, notice a detail that reminds me of them, and suddenly I'm in tears. Grief, it flashes back and forth in time. And I wanted to reflect that in the structure of this play. And the way that I hope that I've connected the audience to the story in a way so that they're on the journey and, and not at all confused is I've, I've given markers and mementos and tokens throughout the play that might take the form of certain words or images or phrases or actual objects that will anchor the audience and the characters in moments that they connect together. Ah. I read that you actually trained in counseling. Would you tell us how your background as a mental health counselor informed this work? Yes, absolutely. I, I came to playwriting before I started work as a mental health counselor, but then I became a much better writer after. And the reason for that is in training to become a counselor, it is absolutely necessary that the counselor understands themselves and, and their life and their journey so that you can connect with your clients and, and separate you from them. And as part of doing that, I've gotten to know myself very well. And that comes through in my writing in the sense that every character I ever write, there's a spark of them that is also a part of me. And that's how I can write them. But in my training as a counselor, I've also clocked hundreds of hours with clients where the goal is to sit with the other person through active listening and, and, and listen to them speak both what they're saying 
but also what's beneath and between the words, because we we don't often say what we mean, especially when we're trying to fight something within ourselves. And so I bring that into my writing, everything the characters want to say, but struggle to say. And I love writing dialogue because I have spent so much time in a very special place listening to people speak. Mm. Peter, would you tell us about the selection process for the plays that make it into the festival? There's no easy way to describe it because we get a lot of interesting work submitted to us. It's really impossible to quantify what it is that we think makes a good play. But uh, one, one particular aspect that we look for is a sense of authenticity, which is... Um, Again, hard to define. I think it, it it's a sense that the writer is truly connected to their material. And, uh, you know, just that, that it's interesting, it's funny, it's sad, it, it affects you emotionally, it is uh, surprising, uh, it's well-constructed. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid, it's like trying to say, why is a painting good? It's, it's difficult to quantify. Peter Hardy, founding artistic director of Essential Theater, and playwright John Maybe. The 23rd Essential Theater Play Festival is on stage through August 28th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, the acclaimed tubist Richard Antoine White tells us about his memoir, I'm Possible, a story of survival, a tuba, and the small miracle of a big dream. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. As you look at the cover of Richard Antoine White's memoir, you might think the title is Impossible. And then you notice there's an apostrophe and realize that the title is I'm Possible. All the more remarkable as we learn this story of survival, a tuba, and the small miracle of a big dream. When White joined me via Zoom in November, he first spoke about the book's prologue and its references to his premature birth. I've always been fascinated by the phenomenon that uh, 
you know, we all start living and dying the moment we start existing. In my life, fortunately, unfortunately, how you choose to look at it started with me being born prematurely, so small that you could put me in your hand and close it. Oftentimes I'm asked, given the difficulties of my life, would I change anything? And the answer is no, it's the hand I was dealt and I definitely played it to the best of my ability. Outside of being born premature, my mom had her own struggles with alcoholism, which led to us being homeless. Uh, ultimately, years later, I view my mom as a hero. So this story is not uh, a pity story. This is a story of triumph, resilience, and overcoming because I consider my mom a hero because she did one of the most difficult things there is to do, and that's to give your kid up or your child so that they can have a better chance at life. On the streets, my everyday existence was somewhat much like no, a normal childhood in that I was playing, I would play with my friends or whomever was out and about, but I had to find food. So I would look in the gutter, find coins, make my way to the open market and find, you know, chicken gizzards or a chicken wing or something, chew a little bit of it and then store the remaining under my tongue because I didn't know where my next meal would come from. And the rest of my day consisted of trying to find my mom if we got separated. Most of the time I was successful. And if I wasn't successful, then I find myself sleeping under a tree on a piece of cardboard or in an abandoned house. And that was my, my daily routine. And you didn't think it was so unusual because it was what you knew. And there was such love between you and your mom. You mentioned that she was a hero. You bring that out immediately, and her love for you comes out resoundingly in this story. Richard, you mentioned you were a preemie. You weren't just a preemie. You weighed a little over one pound. Yes, my foster dad, Richard McLean Sr., tells me that he would see me and he feels so bad. And, you know, in the book, I, I, I quote him. He said, Lord, boy, you had all these tubes coming out your nose, all in your body. I didn't know what to do. And then he tells me that you could literally put me in your hands and close them. And now you are six foot five and have a nice solid frame. Thank you very much. There was a horror story you experienced when you were just a few months old that must leave nightmares for your many readers. Would you talk about the scar you have? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I know a lot of readers will read the book and say, you know, how can he remember that so young, between the ages of three and four and a half? The beauty of my story is that people are still in existence who could still recount to help me fill in the blanks that were missing from my story. I was eaten by rats. And Ricky Jr., the son of my foster parents, told me, you know, they received a call saying a baby is crying in an abandoned, burnt house, actually. And they knew where my mom dwelled. So somehow they knew who to contact. Where it got to Richard McLean Jr., he came running down there with a 22 shotgun and bodged into the burnt house and shot the rats. And he panicked because he thought I would lose my hearing. Turns out my hearing's just fine. And he sort of saved the day. I asked him because I have this scar on my side, which I never knew where it came from. And that's how I know this story. Oh, 
You describe going to visit the McLeans with your mom, and you describe the house as Buckingham Palace. What was it that you discovered? I think not only the material things, I think routine. You have to think about the age I was. So I didn't really see Buckingham Palace as a step up in life. All I saw Buckingham Palace was this place I got to go to and these mean people that took me away from the one person I love more than anything in my life at that age. So at Buckingham Palace, you ate three meals a day. That was insane to me. So I would eat lunch and eat half the sandwich and stick the other half in my pocket. And then they would say, hey, you know, if you want another sandwich, just ask for one. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm gonna stick this sandwich in my pocket. And then there were routines like, you know, cleanliness. You had to take a, a bath and wash and then put on these things called pajamas. I would often take those pajamas off, put my dirty clothes on and sleep on the floor because that's what I was most comfortable. And then the anger in me, you know, they had this amazing living room with china cabinets and glass everywhere, a whole wall full of mirrors. I was so angry at them that for years, I just talked to myself in the mirror because I didn't want to talk to the mean people that took me away from my mom. So I would look at myself in the mirror and go, hey, I know you. You're going to be okay. Can you and I be friends? Look, you're doing the same thing I'm doing. And so that was my best friend. I learned to give myself a hug. And I think I quote in the book, sometimes in life, you have to learn to be your own hero. And I sort of learned that through, through the, the trials and tribulations at Buckingham Palace, which were actually blessings, just weren't seen that way at the time. The book is dedicated to your mom, Cheryl White, and Richard and Vivian McLean, who obviously were not the meanest people on the face of the earth, as you came to realize. Will you explain the situation that evolved with your relatives, where you came to live, and the confusion with names that you had? Yeah, so if you're not attentive, the book may be a little confusing. I've got dinged on a couple reviews, but it's all right. I think the story stands as it is. So my foster mom and dad, Vivian Richard McLean, also adopted my mom. So my grandparents became my mom and dad. This developed because uh, I'm told from Richard McLean Jr. that Vivian McLean had him, their only natural born son. And she was diabetic, so it created serious complications. So her and my mom's natural mom decided that she would have a kid for Vivian. That kid was my mom. And so my mom end up living with Vivian Richard McLean. And when the incident happened in the snowstorm with me, those were the relatives that they, they contacted. And over the years, that relationship developed so much so that one day, Vivian and Richard called me into the room and said, we have something important to tell you. I thought I was going to get in trouble, actually. And they set me down and said, we want you to stop calling us grandma and granddad and call us mom and dad. It was an emotional moment. It was a moment where I felt like I truly belonged in this family now. It wasn't just a piece of paper or legal guardianship, but it was from their heart to my heart that I belonged. As I've grown, I'm fascinated that it takes so little to make a difference in someone's life. And I think in our country, we have thousands of problems. I really believe that 99% of them can be solved if we were just kind to one another. And I'm grateful that they were kind towards me. I think we're not totally honest with the grade we're achieving or uh, receiving when it comes to kindness. And so I think they took very little 
and made a difference in my life. And I want everyone to know that great people aren't born great, they grow great. And this book is dedicated to my mom, Richard and Vivian McLean, because they helped me to grow great. And the best part about this journey that I'm on is that I'm not done yet. <laughs> that is an incredible moment when the McLeans tell you to call them mom and dad. There's also a heartwarming story about taking you to the store to buy school clothes. <laughs> Will you share that? Yes. I don't even know if they're still in existence, but they certainly are not in New Mexico where I reside now. I went to a store called Kmart. I mean, it was like just unbelievable, like open up a vault of goodness. And I was told that I could pick anything I want. And yet, yet again, here's that idea of, yeah, right. So I start putting jeans, shirts, and tennis in, into the, the cart. And then I, I, was, I paused because I couldn't figure out if I wanted low tops or high tops. They both looked really cool. And Vivian said, you can have both of them. And I was like, wow. So I put the high tops and the low tops in the cart. And then I had a moment of panic because I was like, wow, all this stuff. And then as we were going to check out, I thought, oh, my, who's going to pay for all this? You know, I was like, not me. And uh, Vivian took out, I'm, I'm dating myself here, a check and wrote a check <laughs> <laughs> and paid for everything. And it was a crazy moment because then when I went to school, I was I was delighted. It was like Christmas, but I was picked on because the stuff I got at Kmart apparently wasn't name brand. It wasn't Nike. It wasn't Chordash. So the kids made fun of me, but I didn't care. I had my new shoes. I had my jeans and I was happy. Uh, at that age, those kids had no idea that I come from having nothing to something. Oh, kids can be cruel. I <laughs> should add, you mentioned you live in New Mexico. You were born and grew up in Baltimore. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with the renowned tubist and author Richard Antoine White about his new memoir, I'm Possible. Grandpa Archie was your best friend, as you oh, describe. Yeah. What was so endearing about him? He was simple. I think he just loved me. I think it's love in its simplest form. Our favorite pastime was to sit in his room, eat peppermints, and watch the Baltimore Oreos. And it was amazing on an old school TV. And uh, I was just blown away. And, you know, the kids can be mischief. So I would take a dollar or some change from his wallet to go get ice cream or be the hero in the neighborhood, buy everybody candy. And I know that he knew I was taking uh, money from his wallet, but he never said anything. In fact, I think he ate it and put it out so I could find it. So I could go get candy. And I miss Grandpa Archie dearly. He was a man of very few words, but he showed his expression in the most valuable way that I think you can. And that's with time, because time is the one thing none of us can buy more of. And he definitely gave me a lot of his time. And I love him for that. I loved him, too, from your writing. Chapter 8 is titled Trumpet Lessons. And this memoir is largely about the role of music in your life. Why was fourth grade a turning point, Richard? 
fourth grade was a turning point. I have to give Vivian and Richard a lot of credit because from early on, they had the mindset that I may leave one day when I became of age, meaning 18, and go back to my roots. So they often taught me in a manner that would allow me to take care of myself. For example, if there was a gallon of milk, they poured half the milk in a jar so that I could make my own cereal. And having done this, they taught me responsibility and independence. So in fourth grade, I was going to fail. I was not doing well. They had this brilliant idea. Well, he likes music, so let's take his trumpet. So they took my trumpet and the rules were that I had to turn my grades around and be obedient in order to get the trumpet back. I really wanted that trumpet because music gave me a sense of belonging. I got to hang with a group of people that had a common goal and we were all cool. I don't know many places where, you know, you can play a musical instrument and be cool. Usually they call you the band nerds, but amongst ourselves, we were the coolest people in school, <laughs> right? And so I wanted the trumpet back. So I, I changed my tune and I, I've never repeated a grade since. I won't say I've never failed a class since because that's just not true, but I've definitely put my best effort forward. And uh, that was a turning point for me because I also realized in that moment that you can achieve a considerable amount of success if you work hard. But I don't want your listeners to walk away thinking that I think all you have to do is work hard in life because it's simply not true. I think the other part of that fourth grade story is that the village that I had behind me, meaning Richard Vivian McLean, all the teachers that believed in me, all the mentors, and I think along with hard work, it certainly takes a village for one to succeed. You had your friend Dante also. Ah, yes, love Dante. There's some really funny moments. I won't give too much of the book away, but uh, I think if, if you read the book, there's some really candid moments and just hilarious moments between me and Dante. I still talk to Dante, just talked to him two days ago, and, and we were just reminding each other that our friendship has helped us because of two things. One, our commonality, and then secondly, our differences. And we chuckled. We were like, yeah. You know, we, we embraced all the things we had in common and we grew from all the things that we had that were diverse. Tubist and author Richard Antoine White. His book is I'm Possible. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with the acclaimed tubist and now author, Richard Antoine White. We've been discussing his new memoir, I'm Possible. And here, White speaks to his time at the Baltimore School for the Arts. Much like the streets, the Baltimore School for the Arts taught me not only academics, but it taught me what the hustle was about. And if you read my book, you'll see the lengths I went through to get scholarships to navigating and negotiating. What changed for me at Baltimore School for the Arts, I was asked to participate in, I think, a guide right program or something, some scholarship program for a commercial. And after that commercial, they said, yeah, so a lot of kids will participate and they're going to get scholarship. They're going to get thousands of dollars. And I went, hold on, time out. 
you can get money playing the tuba. Uh, what this right here? Thousands? Did you say thousands? So once I heard that, I was like, I'm finna come to school every morning, seven thirty. I'm practicing <laughs> this tuba because, and I told Dante, I say, man, you know, you, you get thousands of dollars with this. And so I started practicing every morning with the intent to get scholarship. Uh, it changed my whole philosophy in terms of grades being a, a pathway to uh, a strong academic background. And that was my purpose. So Baltimore School for the Arts helped me to understand the hustle in mainstream terms. And it was there that you met Tupac Shakur. How did he influence you? It's interesting talking about Tupac all the time because a lot of the world know him as, you know, the gangster thug life rapper. I knew him as one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. I knew him as the theater major that sat in the cafeteria writing rhymes all day, but could get on the stage and do Shakespeare and iambic pentameter and just lay it down like like he, he was meant to do it. He encouraged me to read, to be uh, accountable for historical references. He always would say, you don't know nothing about the Black Panthers. You need to read the Black Panthers, man. You need to know your history. And as a result, he was so articulate that I start looking up Black Panthers, start you know, wanting to know about history. And I think, you know, he changed the world with his lyrics and his rap songs. And I think the message from Tupac and a lot of other influential people in my life is tradition in addition to, and I think it's very relevant to what's happening today with technology. We're not trying to abandon or kill anyone's past tradition. We understand how we got here, but let's wake up. Let's wake up our social consciousness and understand that. How about tradition in addition to, and let's move forward together with everything. And Tupac taught me that. I mean, I had goose flesh reading your part of the book about Tupac. Early in the book, you wrote about the people who saved you. Richard, how did the tuba save you? The tuba kept me off the streets. The tuba kept me involved. The tuba opened up my world to a more diverse world. Oftentimes, I'm often asked, you know, how is it being the only African-American on stage in classical music? And my response is, well, you know, we all choose from the same set of notes. The point being that we all have the, the same goal, and that's just to make beautiful music. So music definitely saved my life because of the dedication it takes to really get good at it, which kept me in a room trying to master this craft, which kept me out of trouble. It also opened up avenues because academically, I'm not sure uh, my academics alone would have warranted the kind of scholarships that afforded me to go to Peabody Conservatory, now Johns Hopkins Institute of the Peabody or Indiana University. So in those regards, it gave me what I often refer to as the three C's, choice, chance, and change. I think what we all want in life is simply a chance to make the right choices, to see the kind of change that's for the betterment of all. And that's what, that's what the tuba did for me. I love the title you gave to chapter 14, which is, Yo-Yo Ma should be sad he plays the cello. <laughs> You've already talked about the metaphor of the tuba. Can you tell us what it is about the sound of the instrument that you love? Yeah, I think that chapter, you made me laugh because I grew up in tuba royalty. I mean, Mr. Phillips first tuba player to play a whole week of concerts in Carnegie Hall. Yes. So the tuba is not to be played with in that it makes me laugh because I said to a student one day, 
you know, why, why should you play any less than Yo-Yo Ma just because he's Yo-Yo Ma? I said, we should make him feel bad that he picked the cello. And so that's where that story <laughs> derives from. So I think the tuba, if you think about the orchestral responsibilities, you know, the trumpet player, you know, maybe two and a half octaves, trombone, same, two, two and a half octaves. But the tuba player and French horns are responsible for five octaves. And the French horns get to split it between high and low. But if you're a tuba player, you're responsible for five octaves. I think the tuba is just getting started, only invented in 1835. To put things into perspective, it's not until 2052 that our first concerto will be 100 years old. And the world is just starting to see what this instrument can do. I think it's the most versatile instrument that we have outside of the piano. you give on that. That was the Vaughn Williams tuba concerto you were speaking about and and you write about the effect it had on you. It was mesmerizing. It was transformative when you heard the Baltimore Symphony tubist play that. Yes, I think I've always been mesmerized by David Federley Sound, former principal tubist of Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. And, you know, oftentimes I think things are confused in our world with dialogue because we all interpret things differently. I think there's a difference between emotion and motion. You know, motion is the rhythm of the music. Emotion is how it makes you feel. And here in David Federley play the second movement of the volumes in the BSO stirred some kind of emotion in me that didn't need explaining. It didn't need a detailed description. It just made me feel a, a kind of way. And that resonated with me. And I think it it also created a contagious aura that I was able to emit to my classmates. And it was just a great and phenomenal musical experience. I'll never forget that. And that sound is still in my head. When I pick up my tuba, I still want to sound like him. You ended up, as we mentioned, attending the Peabody Conservatory of Music, now part of Johns Hopkins. This is a major accomplishment. Yet there were times you felt you didn't belong. Why? I think it goes back to this whole tradition in addition to. I went to Peabody at a time. And for the listeners here, you have to understand that Peabody Conservatory is the oldest conservatory in the United States. So tradition was embedded in those walls. When I went to Peabody, they did not have a jazz program. And I talked to the director and I said, hey, how come we don't have jazz here? And he said, well, this is a conservatory. That's not what we do. And I said, well, you realize how disrespectful that is? You're saying that, you know, my heritage is less important. And I said, there aren't the different set of notes that we use for jazz than we use for classical, right? And he goes, you got a good point. (laughs) And so now Peabody has an incredible jazz program. It's thriving. Uh, It's full of diversity. And I think uh, that kind of participation and willingness to listen 
was very important. But there you were, an undergraduate, shaping the curriculum. Yeah, I have to give the universe credit for that. You know, I have this long list of of village. I call them village people that help me. And I, (laughs) I think the world is part of that because I think life lessons are very important, you know, even to the point of life lessons that aren't always in a successful manner. You know, I often have to coach my students up from events that they may have partaked in that didn't go the way they want it to. And I have developed an acronym for failing and it's finding an intended lesson in needed growth. What that means is that there's something you needed to know that you didn't know that you now know so you can fix it. So there was something that the institution didn't know about the the presence of jazz that they now know that they now incorporated. So now we're all better for it. I am going to remember that acronym, Richard. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with the renowned tubist and author Richard Antoine White about his new memoir, I'm Possible. So, your Peabody teacher, Mr. Federley, encouraged you to go to graduate school, which led to a bidding war for you. (laughs) I mean, like a great athlete. Tell us how that unfolded between two great universities, Northwestern and Indiana University. (laughs) That's a funny story. I'll, I'll give the audience a preview to my next book, The Five Educative Languages of Teaching. And in that book, I I have several types of teachers, and David Federley is the truth teller. And what he taught me most is that the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off, and then you'll be better for it. (laughs) (laughs) So I had already committed to Northwestern University to be the teaching assistant there, and I was calling Rex Martin, the teacher there, to, to confirm, and the phone rings, and then it's Daniel Parentoni, and he says, hey. I just want you to hear me out before you commit to Northwestern. I can have you go on the road with Canadian Brass. I was like, yeah, right. What are you talking about? Canadian Brass? He says, no, I mean, you can be ready to leave this summer. And I was like, what? And so I I click over on the phone. David Federley's in the room. I'm in the room. And Rex and Parentoni are on each side of the call. I click over to Rex and say, hey, Parentoni said he can make me go on tour with Canadian brass, what you got? I can't compete with Indiana. You, if you want to go there, you just go in there. You know, that's a whole different ball game. So I click back over and I said, Mr. Pete, I'm coming to Indiana. I click back over and said, Mr. Martin, I'm not coming to Northwestern. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how that story goes. <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. Many of our listeners know that I am very proud to have attended the Indiana University School of Music. You you think you were dating yourself talking about cassette players. I predate the Jacobs School of Music and your mentor and beacon, Mr. Harvey Phillips, was still relatively young at the time I was there. I think it was when he started the Octuba Fest. Oh, wow. Well, my first year was 76, which was also, if you were a basketball fan, the undefeated season 
championship with Bobby Knight. Yes, that's that's an amazing time. I think uh, for the listeners that don't know, it, when you talk about the month of October, the last day in October was October 31st. Yes. <laughs> and Harvey Phillips was a legend, and here you are carrying on the torch. Would you describe Harvey Phillips and and your interaction with him at IU? He's a dreamer. Uh, in my book, I, I label him the dreamer. A few years before 1976 and 1973, you know, he calls up Rockefeller Center in New York and say, hey, I, I want to have hundreds of tuba players come by Rockefeller Center dressed in Santa Claus suits and play Christmas carols. They say, hey, do, do you know where you have called? And who, <laughs> and who are you? And you want to do what with what? He said, well, before you turn me down, how about you check my references to the likes of Leonard Bernstein and others? And so they checked his references, called him back and said, hey, Mr. Phillips, we check your references. You can have anything you want. When would you like Rockefeller Center? And so Mr. Phillips was incredible. He was the dreamer, full of ideas. He told me that the secret to success is to find something that doesn't exist, that is needed, and then invent it. Uh, I miss him dearly. I think he has been the most influential person over my career, my musical career, and how I develop and the person I am. And I think, more importantly, outside of music, he and Federally have a huge role in my life in installing integrity. And that means a lot, because I think as many great musicians that Mr. Phillips produced, he produced great human beings. And that's a very fine tribute to his teaching because it wasn't all about the music. It was about the music and the person and the people listening to the music. So beautiful. So here you were arguably at the jewel in the crown of tuba programs at Indiana. Yet once again, you were in a minority, as you put it, just six brothers in the IU School of Music. <laughs> now, what was the impact of that in graduate school this time around? Uh, I think we gravitated towards each other. I'll work backwards on this question because we ended up creating a scholarship, Brothers in Achievement Scholarship. Three of those six brothers got together and created a scholarship so that uh, kids today wouldn't have some of the hardships that we had financially, which is pretty significant because I'm still paying back Sally Mae, but I'm still dedicated to paying the scholarship to Indiana University. And I think the impact that that had is community. I think, you know, in our society today, diversity, equity, inclusion is such a big thing. But I think sometimes, you know, we leave out the B and the B would be diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. And so I, I think that that group of like people help me feel a sense of, of belonging. And I think naturally we gravitated towards each other, not in any malicious way. It was just a natural thing to do. And I think that influenced me because we all had one goal in mind, regardless of our skin color, which definitely made us feel a sense of belonging. And that was to achieve excellence. I often say that excellence is void of color or gender. It's just on the level or it's not. And I think because we didn't want to let each other down, we upheld this level of excellence 
and it helped each of us uplift each other. And that sense of community propelled each one of us forward. Every single one of them is successful today. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with the renowned tubist and author Richard Antoine White about his new memoir, I'm Possible. Part three of the book deals with your professional life as a musician, beginning with the New Mexico Symphony Orchestra. You write about how natural you felt in your new tuxedo. And I was hoping you'd talk about your solo in John Williams' Suite from Star Wars. Yeah, one of the solos I had to play was Jabba the Hutt. And if you don't know the Star Wars uh, series, it's just all tuba with a, a nice light bed of string accompaniment. And so when they do these special concerts in New Mexico, they really do. People come dressed up in costume, the kids come in costumes. And at that time we were at New Mexico Symphony Orchestra. So we were doing each concert three times, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I not only had to play Jabba on Friday, I had to come back and do a Saturday and Sunday. And it was an amazing experience. It was the first time I really got the sense that this community embraced me because I gained hundreds of little kids as fans. And so much so that when we were leaving the stage, a little kid said, look, mommy, it's a real live Jabber the Hut." And I was like, <laughs> are you calling me fat kid? <laughs> yeah, it was just awesome. playing it well I don't know that I'll ever play it again it's not often scheduled tuba players go their whole life and not play it so the fact that I got to do it multiple times it's really great I got to blend with the community and touch the community with the tuba keep in mind the tuba became cool at that point like it did for me many years before I think you have a lot to do with keeping it so you were the first African-American to earn a doctorate in tuba performance. Your story is a testament to the power of family love and music as salvation. To conclude, Richard, would you read the prologue through the top of page two? I button up my tux and the world shifts. For a short while, everything moves at half speed. I walk slowly. I sit slowly. I speak slowly. I conserve my breath, buzzing into my mouthpiece. I walk on stage and I'm greeted by the plumage of red seats, soft and inviting. Slowly, quietly, the audience bubbles into the theater, which is a glow. They hush at the sight of us holding our instruments, flapping through the sheets on our stands, or closing our eyes, trying to get close to the music one way or another. I play the piece in my mind, 
letting it unfurl just as I wanted to when I put my lips on the brass mouthpiece of my tuba. I inhale an epic breath and allow myself fleetingly to think I've made it. The lights dim, the crowd settles, the conductor raises his arms and the hall pulses alive. The harp, the piano, the woodwinds, flutes, oboes, clarinets and bassoons, the strings, violins, violas, cellos and bass, the percussions, snare, xylophones, bass drum and timpani, the brass, trumpet, French horn, trombones and tuba. All of our voices become one, one powerful voice that draws everyone present into a whole other world of hope and passion, sadness and joy and possibility. Tubist and author Richard Antoine White from our conversation in November of 2021. More information about White's memoir, I'm Possible, is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the prolific artist Steve Keen shares stories from his new art book, including how he's created over 300,000 original paintings and why he still enjoys giving them away. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.